Amen. Well, if you would please remain standing for the reading of God's Word this evening, we will be looking in Judges chapter 3. You can find it on your pew Bible on page 202. We will look in verses 12 through 30. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof of chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still, when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor." Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. We ask, O Lord, just now, take a word a passage, a story like this that perhaps is difficult and offensive to many and write it upon our hearts that we might understand more clearly the goodness and glory of our God in the face of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we make it our prayer, speak, O Lord, for Your servants are listening. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
I don't know how you thought about that text. Perhaps you chuckled. Maybe you were offended. But I'm sure we could all agree this is not going to make the top 10 children's story list. And you might say to yourself, well, it's because of how graphic it is. The details are not shy and they're not short. There are several of them. But perhaps the reason why it's not a very well-known story is because it, it creates philosophical problems, doesn't it? People want to challenge, is God's word true and is it authoritative? Is there a mistake? Or does it mean what it actually says? Many have tried to suggest this passage doesn't really mean what it says. Certainly, that's not what God was trying to get across. And so with our weaknesses and our uncomfortability, we want to write it off. And yet what I think you and I need to be reminded of is over and over and over again, what is the book of Judges saying to us? Salvation is of the Lord. It is all of Him And it is entirely unexpected and unlikely. You and I would not draft and write a story such as this. You and I would not think of salvation in these terms or come up with this plan. And it is because the world does not understand the things of God. God is the one who saves And so I think perhaps what we could say this evening is when we look at this story, as one man has suggested, you and I need to take off our Western shoes and put on your Middle Eastern BC sandals. And what was he trying to suggest in that comment? He's saying that you and I read this and we think one thing, but the people of Israel would have heard this and understood it entirely different. What they are hearing and what they are thinking is nothing of what you and I just heard and thought. And so we want to be careful as 21st century Western people before we place our judgment upon God and upon his word as to say, you can't say that and you can't do that, we first should confront ourselves. How many of us have accommodated to the things of this world even in the past week? hearing of murders, of adulteries, of thefts and robberies, hearing the sirens go pass by and as assuming it is nothing but normality. And then, then to look at this text and say, how offensive, how dare you? Could this be, in fact, what God is saying? And so what I want to do for us tonight is to remind us of the pattern by which we've been in, not so much the continual pattern of what we did last week with Othniel, saying that here is a paradigm, you might say, of salvation, but this pattern that judges, and in fact, you could argue the scripture is saying to you and to me over and over again, what you and I need as the people of God is spiritual renewal. Our churches need to be renewed over and over and over again by the grace of God. And you and I in our own life need the same that what we most desperately stand in need of is the persistent grace of God when we do not want it or, in fact, when we do not even appreciate it. And that's what we're looking at this evening. 
And so I want to help you in understanding some of its observations by putting it in a historical context for a moment. When uh, to do so, let me back us up right outside of this book, and then I'll bring us in to our passage. Israel invades Canaan in 1406 BC. That takes about seven years to complete. And these time markers are helpful because you're starting to get some of them tonight. And so we've got 1406 BC. That's when they begin their invasion. It takes about seven years. And what you and I will learn is Joshua dies roughly in 1390. And what we read last week with Othniel is that he defeats the Syrians in roughly 1367. And do you remember the end of that story? The people of God, not them, but the land was given rest for 40 years. So what that means is when we open Judges chapter 3 and verse 12, we're beginning somewhere around the year 1327. And by the time we really get into our passage, what's a detail that comes out? Well, Israel has been under foreign domain again for 18 years, which puts us at what? 1309. And by the time we finish our passage in verse 30, We're going to learn about this 80 years of rest. And so really what you're thinking there is when Ehud is the leader of the people of God, it only takes about three years. And where do the people find themselves? A hundred years in the promised land. And what you and I might expect that would say, that is quite the feat. That is a celebration of celebrations to having been in the promised land for a hundred years. Yet you and I know something altogether different. In this hundred-year period, they have had two national backslidings. They have spent more than a quarter of their time under foreign rule, 26 years to be exact. And it has taken God two majestic and glorious deliverances to bring them back out. And it seems to matter nothing to these people who have been brought out of slavery, out of the wilderness, into the promised land to put themselves right back enslaved. They seem to care not that they have been delivered and that they are the people of God. So how do we make sense of this passage? I want to do so with three observations or three points what you and I can see is there is an unexpected Savior. There is an unexpected message. And there is an unexpected result. First, an unexpected Savior. The people of God, like we have just discussed, they have fallen back into sin. In fact, what it is saying is not as though they you know, had a period of respite in which they were not sinning. It's just saying they're doing it again and again and again. And so they have fallen back into sin and they're continuing to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And therefore, God strengthens Eglon. He is the king of Moab. And you and I just think that's helpful information. The people are back in sin, so God strengthens an oppressor, Eglon, but he's not a nobody. That's what you and I might think. When we read this story, great, But Eglon, he rises by way of the Lord. He gathers some buddies, some partners, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they defeat Israel. 
And you and I have been confronted over and over in this book already. There are a host of people that have confronted Israel that the Lord has used to judge them. And we've already talked about several of them, haven't we? Do you know who's not been a part of that list? When the people of God entered into Canaan and they were to drive them all out, no one in the inhabitants of Canaan are supposed to be there. Do you know who's not on the list? Moab, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. And so you have to start scratching your head and go, why? Why are these people not on the list and why has God begun to use them? You see, you and I thought it was just a detail, but the audience heard this and were deeply cut and would have had to be confronted by something. Moab, you can read of Moab and Ammon in Genesis 19. What do you learn in Genesis 19? Moab and Ammon, they are the two sons of Lot, brought about by incest. Two of the most despicable groups of people ever to walk the face of the earth, having been delivered, here is these two groups through incest, Moab and Ammon. And who is Amalek? He is a descendant of Esau. And if you know anything about your Old Testament, the Amalekites so hate Israel and so go after them that God in the book of Deuteronomy decrees that they will be extinct. They will be taken off the face of the earth. And so what is Israel hearing right here? What are the people of God listening when they find out Eglon, the king of Moab, has been strengthened by God and here are his buddies, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they're coming after him. What are they listening to? They would have immediately thought, that is the reflection of who we've been. That is the confrontation of our sin. That's our past sins. And here they are again. All they recognize is we are in sin. Sin, sin, sin. And that is what these people are having to be confronted with immediately. It's as though we have this subliminal message that is trying to say, repent and turn to God. Do not, do not be enslaved to your sin. And it's as though if you're not going to repent, do not think you are smarter or craftier than anyone. Your sin will find you out. It will come out. It might be 40 years, but it will come out, or we might say come to the light. And so King Eglon, he is strengthened by the Lord. He defeats Israel and takes possession of this city of palms, that is Jericho. And then you are a good Bible scholar, so you think to yourself, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would that happen? Isn't that that city, not Jericho with Gideon, we hadn't gotten there, but isn't that the city in which God has already proven a great defeat for Israel and Joshua makes an oath in Joshua 6 that what? Whoever, whoever rebuilds this city will incur the wrath of God. And this is where we are. King Eglon, strengthened by the Lord, defeating Israel, setting up let's say, his capital palace in Jericho. 
under the promise of God that you will incur my wrath. And these people, we learn about it later in the passage, they're, well, where are they? They're on the hill country of Ephraim. That's not your great vacation spot. You're not looking to go to Ephraim. It's on the hill side. It's a place of poverty. It's a place of nothing. And here they are. And they cry out to the Lord. Now, you and I, we discussed it with Othniel. We're not talking about a people who are crying out because they have recognized their sin and they are repenting and saying, forgive us, O Lord. No, what are they doing? They're crying out again saying, we're desperate. We're desperate. Change our circumstances. Make whatever this is end. Do something for us. And then God does a great work, doesn't he? And he does so in a very unexpected way. You remember, we began, and I told you that this story has a great deal of details. And it's not meant to be just some well-crafted story so that you can find yourself being a part and carried along. These details are quite significant. They mean something. If you miss them, most likely you, have, in fact, missed the point of the story. What is one of the details that we learn early on? Ehud, he's left-handed. I'm left-handed. So I immediately thought this was, this was great. There's a biblical precedence here. And then I began to study what it meant, and I thought, oh no, I don't want to claim left-handedness anymore. Ehud, he's left-handed, and he's in the tribe of Benjamin. Now, actually, what the Hebrew is saying here is they're not saying Ehud, you're left-handed. What it's saying is he can't use his right hand. He is unable to use his right hand, whether it's because he's crippled or deformed. Many people are trying to make arguments. We're not entirely sure, but he is unable. He lacks the ability to use his right hand. And so therefore, we read it as he is left-handed. Why is this important? What does this mean? Let's put it in our language. When you and I are hungry, we call DoorDash. You get on your phone, you pull out the DoorDash app, you type in your food. If you don't do that, it's a good thing. And you're waiting for them to bring your food. It's that simple. It's that easy for you. When you and I are afraid, we pick that phone back up and we call 911 and we think the police are going to come and they're going to provide protection for us. And that is a good thing. That's not at all what would have happened in this society. When you're hungry, you hunt. And unless you're Robbie Hines, you're hungry. You go hunt for your food. If you're afraid, you must take up arms and protect yourself. And so what the biblical purpose is saying, there's something theological here. What people would have understood is the right hand is the dominant one. What do you learn about the right-handedness of God? At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. At the right hand of God, he blesses his people. At the right hand of God, he defends his people and he extinguishes their enemies. At the right hand of God, do we find the Son of God ruling and reigning. It's this picture of power and provision. And Ehud lacks all of it, he's left handed. In other words, unless you're our senior pastor, 
you're playing a pickup game of basketball. You pick the biggest and the best because you want to win. And what is this text saying? Ehud is picked last every time. When you hear Ehud being called out of the bullpen, you say, oh no, not him. We can't win with this guy. He is left-handed. Ironically, in the tribe of Benjamin, meaning what? Son of the right hand. And this is where we see the Lord raising up a deliverer. Where the people of God go, no, not him. He's powerless. And yet God says, exactly. That's what I want you to see. Friends, this evening, we we need to understand that. You and I are left-handed. We are a weak people. We are a powerless and in great need, something that we cannot achieve on our own. As one individual said it, grace is left-handed. Salvation is left-handed, if you want it to say that way. So quickly, we look to the things that we can see. That's what we put our hope in. We put our trust in the things that we perceive that we can control. And yet what we need more than anything is the left-handed grace of God. How would the New Testament describe this? Remember the Pharisees? What did they say? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Nothing of repute would come from there. Who cares about the Nazarenes? And yet you and I know our left-handed Savior came from there, didn't he? Isn't that what Isaiah says in chapter 53? There's nothing that you would look at him and desire him. There's nothing of beauty that you would want him. And yet that is God's grace to you and to me. He raises up that which the world would say is weak and is powerless. And God explodes by showing, I am not. And I do as I please It's such an unlikely and unexpected thought, isn't it? Because the people are crying out, but they're in a very deserving situation. They are under oppression because they deserve it. This is what they have earned for their sin and the evil in the sight of the Lord. This is where they should be. And yet what is so unexpected is that God would raise up a Savior here. God doesn't take it lightly when his people are oppressed. And I think it's important for you and I to remember such a thing, not always on a macro scale, but sure there. But what about the micro scale that says, when you see the oppression of sin in your life, God's not afraid of your mess. He's not afraid of your sin as though you have a sin that is stronger or exceeds his grace. We have an unexpected 
or an unlikely Savior, one who says, I came for you to buy you back. We have an unexpected Savior. We also have an unexpected message. The people, they send tribute to the king, the king of Moab, Eglon, probably some kind of grain or crop. And then we learn that Ehud, he he makes a sword, some kind of knife, and he attaches it to his right thigh. Now again, we're about to get a very significant detail. What are we to understand that we're reading? For starters, no one has definitively said this, but many have tried to suggest that it was Rome that began the the practice or the principle of handshaking. And you would shake with your right hand. And the reason why you would shake with your right hand is for two purposes. It was, yes, an act of loyalty or of friendship or of safety or of peace, but also to say, I'm unarmed. Because if I'm shaking with my right, I can't pull my sword out. And so here I am, and you can see what's happening now, can't you? This left-handed Ehud puts the dagger on his right thigh, able to pass all TSA security checkpoints. And you, you begin to read. What does this mean? What does this look like? Well, then we're told that King Eglon, he's a, he's a very fat man. And he, he's not trying to make you laugh, although maybe... He's not saying he's got some physical disposition towards obesity or he's a frequent attender at Golden Corral. I really think he's trying to tell you something theologically. That is a term used of the ungodly. Jeremiah 5 talks about the fatness of people in sin. They know no boundaries of evil. And here it is. King Eglon, a very fat man, an ungodly, sinful Moabite. You sense his arrogance, don't you? Because Ehud comes in and and you think, this doesn't make sense. Why would you dismiss everyone? Ehud is the enemy. You would never leave yourself alone in the presence of your enemy, unguarded and unprotected. You you can recognize almost you think so highly of yourself, Eglon, that you need no protection. You sent them all out. How foolish, how arrogant. And Ehud says, I have a message for you. And that's when he dismisses everyone. And then he says it again. But he adds something. Did you see that? It went from I have a message to I have a message from God. Now I want you to see an interesting observation here. This changes the way that we learn about Eglon. Up to this point, every time you see his name, you'll see the word king right next to it. And it stops right here. Because what is Ehud saying to him? I have a message from the true king to you. You who thought you ruled and reigned, you who thought you were in charge, you who think that you can do as you please, you are of no king. Only Yahweh is king. Let me tell you what he has to say to you. 
It's a very unexpected message. Your English translations don't really help you in that. When you're looking in verses 24 to 25, it's hard to pick up on it. In the Hebrew, there is a participle that shows up three different times. And it's, if you're reading an NAS, I think you probably see it in English. It's probably saying the word behold. The ESV doesn't really make much of it here. And what I think is happening is it's, it's, meant, to, it's meant to grab your attention. Stop what you're doing. Consider what is about to take place. Slow down. Here's a frame by frame what God is actually saying and what takes place. The knife, he pulls it out and he sticks it in the belly of Eglon. It's a message of judgment, it's a message of condemnation. But you're the Israelites, you heard a different message. Here is the message of the gospel. Look at what God just did. He took a left-handed man that nobody would choose, nobody would pick, and he waltzed into the presence of the king. And the king dismisses everybody. And he kills them. This is not some great military defeat, some great battle plan. This is overly simplistic. How would God do it? Look at how he delivers. The message of God is powerful and it's beyond what you and I would think it would do. Isn't that what we learned this morning in our call to worship? Isn't that what the New Testament says about the gospel? It's the dynamite. It's the power of God. It transforms people. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides. Don't you see the difference? This sword, it represents two different things. You recognize a a sword or a knife in the hand of an evil attacker is deadly. It's, It's dangerous. But in the hand of a surgeon, it's healthy. It's loving. It's healing. It's good. And so as Eglon sees and feels and experiences the judgment of God. Israel hears a very different word. I am your God. Come to me. Rest in me. I am life. You see, it's the truest irony, isn't it? What the gospel is outlining We're a left-handed people. We are weak and powerless. As we said earlier, and just at the right time, God sent his son to save you and to save me. We have an unexpected savior. We have an unexpected message. Lastly, we have an unexpected result. Ehud, he escapes and Israel follows him as their leader. That's what we read. And he tells them, follow after me for the Lord has given you the Moabites into your hand. 
Deliverance has been granted. It's been given by God. A great defeat has come to the point that the land will receive 80 years, some would say two generations of rest. And yet the reality, I hope you are listening, the reality is that the people of God continue to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It takes less than two verses before you see it again. You see, an unexpected Savior with an unexpected message did not lead people to the expected result. That they have just been redeemed from way more than they could have ever achieved on their own. Surely they would follow after God now. He has brought them again out of 18 years of bondage, and yet they remained in their sin. They continued to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the principle, isn't it? What you and I need, we don't, we don't actually need more ehuds. We need more of Jesus. You see, Ehud was raised up by God, a deliverer, a judge, a leader of Israel, but all he could do was change the circumstance. He could not change their hearts. He could not, in fact, break their true bondage. That's the tragedy of the story, that what Israel thought was, oh, I'm just in, I'm enslaved to Moab rather than I'm enslaved by myself and my sin. And so Ehud was only good for their circumstance, the changing of it. But you and I know Jesus, he doesn't just change circumstances. He changes hearts. He changes lives. He changes eternal destinies. And all for his own glory Ehud was not a sufficient savior. Only Jesus is. And it's because you and I have to wrestle with that too, don't we? We're not a whole lot different than these people. They have been confronted in their sin. It's, it's obvious. They know it. And that's what the dominion of darkness, the bondage of sin does. It, it holds you. It says, I own you. I guide and I govern you. And you and I need release from it. But we need it different than what these people are suggesting. It's not simply that I know I'm enslaved. I just, I need something different. It's not merely knowing that you need to be saved. Knowing that you need to be saved, you still lack the ability to achieve it. It's not the knowledge of salvation that you need. You need the Savior, the one who imparts or applies salvation. It's not Ehud. It's Jesus. You need a South Paul Savior. You and I need to be reminded that our Savior says what to us? Although I was rich, I became poor so that you might become rich. 
You need a Savior that says, I lay my life down that you might live. You need a Savior that says, I don't count equality with God as something to be grasped. I empty myself and I become obedient, even obedient to the cross. You need a Savior that the world says, look at how he was defeated because he died. And yet we, the people of God, look and say, what power and strength. Because although he died, did he not rise? And our life now, therefore, can be raised with them. You and I need to be able to come to that Savior and say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. If you were here this morning, that was used quite differently. But for tonight, what does it mean? It means you can't achieve your own salvation. You can't come to God or the Savior saying, look at what I've done. Pick me, pick me. You and I don't have anything to offer. We want to be a people who cry out different than Israel here. We're not crying out for a change of circumstance, but for a change of heart. Lord, change my heart. Let me see you. There's a piercing message tonight. Is it one of judgment to you because you don't know this Savior? Or is it one of healing? Is it one of health? It's something that you want to consider, you know, because you have the privilege to hear it before the return of Christ. Because when he returns, there is no more hearing in which you get to make a decision. You remember that fantastic picture that John gives to us in Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. You see, friends, that is either words of war to you and to me. I am coming to defeat all evil, all enemies of my God, or it's a word of welcome. You who have been oppressed, I have come to provide eternal protection and provision. And it all comes down to how do you handle this piercing message?
do you have a left-handed understanding of salvation? It's the only one there is. You and I don't need Ehud. We need Jesus. Let me pray to that end. Our great God and Father, how we must pause and say how gracious you are. That as we would begin and we would look and say, even in our passage, something of a hundred years is before us and these people do not care. They do evil in your sight. And how long you awaited for their repentance. And yet you delivered them not because they have earned it, deserved it, or done something to provide for themselves, but because you were good and gracious, you provided something that was unexpected. Your son. And that's what we need tonight. No matter how old, no matter how young, no matter how prodigal we perhaps have been, or covenantal, we grew up in a Christian home. We don't need Ehud, we need Jesus. And so, O oh Lord, might you extend the right hand of power and apply the left hand of grace to us that we would see and receive Jesus. And if we know you this night, maybe we need to be reminded it's okay to be left-handed. God can still use me. I can be faithful to you and a powerful instrument for your church and your kingdom. So help us to hear from heaven this night from the truth of your word. Holy Spirit, speak it upon our hearts, we ask in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.